So here we have another Braga script. It was actually a spec script that was then taken and worked on by Braga. And I feel like that shows in several ways. Uh, I've said it before, you know, guest stars are the lifeblood of Star Trek, and that's certainly true in this episode. Uh, the woman, Mariana Plunkett, which I hope I'm saying that correctly, is a fairly good, fairly good addition to this one. She and Jordy actually have a lot of really good chemistry together, which I think is awesome. And what's weird about that is she was originally supposed to be a romantic interest for Jordy. And then they changed their mind because they'd done the romantic thing several times recently. I think that was a move for the right. Not because, you know, I hate romance in all its forms. No furting. But because of the fact that I think the two work better in the non-romantic type. And I feel like pointing out that the two have some, you know, obvious good chemistry and connection without there being a romance involved. Just kind of showing that that actually, you know, can happen in fiction in real life, too. I wanted to mention a quick thing about setting continuity, because I had that whole speech last week about quiet continuity. Setting continuity, you know, details. Not, not location, not time, but, you know, little details. Props, inferences, references. In here, we have a bit of setting continuity because all of the uniforms the Starfleet personnel wear back in the past are the older uniforms from Season 1. Again, little touch, and I wouldn't even be surprised if most people didn't even really consciously notice that, but at the same time, you do notice that to some extent or another, and it just kind of helps to sell the moment. Just, just little stuff like that. I wanted to point that out. So, uh, we actually have a pretty decent teaser in this episode. So, we, we're on this planet, and then the people who were on that planet have gone missing, and one of them went missing very quickly, and the only two people left are me and Jordy. da 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 It's a mystery. We've, season 4 really likes its mysteries, doesn't it? Okay. I mentioned how I do... Well, how do I phrase this? This is an episode that both does and doesn't work. I can't really call it good or bad. It's more like if I was to map the quality of the episode, it would be doing this constantly throughout the whole thing. Because there's moments of, yeah, and then there's moments of, ugh. Let me give you one example. They get to the planet. They see the shuttlecraft. They say, oh, okay. Well, the shuttlecraft is right there. And it's spiraling mildly out of control. It's going to destroy itself. So we only have a few, you know, a few seconds. We've got to go rush up there. Well, we're out of transporter range, which is already a little bit okay. And apparently they're out of tractor beam range as well, which frankly doesn't even need to be said if they're out of transporter range because they can transport a hell of a lot further than they can tractor. But I digress. Then they stand around for one minute and two seconds. I counted. Then the shuttle is destroyed. Not about you guys. But I'm pretty sure they could have covered uh, any distance that is between them and a ship that they have visual range on within one minute and two seconds to get up there and beam them off. In fact, to use a direct parallel, there's an episode of DS9 where they're like, oh god, we're out of range. They warp in, tractor a guy, and, and fling him out of his path at the last moment in order to you know, save the day. I'm not going to spoil the specifics of that episode because we're not there yet, but those of you who have seen DS9 know what I'm talking about. There's also the show where previously to now in TNG they were able to zoop, warp, you know, warp in, beam down, and then warp out. That happened back in season one. Remember, or, yeah, season one. Remember that uh, in the uh, the schizoid man. So why can't they go save this guy? Did everyone just kind of agree that you know what? I don't even like that guy really. Let's just watch him die. 
And I know what you're saying. Lore, come on. It's a minute and two seconds. Yeah, a minute two seconds in a crisis situation is an eternity. I got to be honest. When I started counting, I figured it would be way shorter than that. And I, I would be defeating my own point. But a full minute and two seconds. <sighs> Whatever. Then she starts freaking out. Now, this is where the episode starts to work a little bit more. Her reaction, uh, Lighten's reaction, Lighten's freaking out and insistence on being on the planet. And, and I like this because, for once, they treat this intelligently. She is obviously behaving out of character, and they notice immediately and do something about it immediately, exactly like they should. And lo and behold, this ends up saving her life, and as it happens, Jordy's as well, because they get on it quickly enough that they are able to get her into the operating table in order to figure out what the hell's wrong with her quickly enough in order to save both her and Jordy. I just want to applaud that because that makes perfect sense from a professional perspective, but also from the friend perspective, that Jordy, who knows this woman as a friend, would notice immediately that something's off here. It's also worth noting, and this is important because this will be relevant in a moment, she starts transforming within seconds. And we'll see this later with Jordy as well. Once it starts hitting, once it starts remapping, it takes seconds before the initial changes to happens, and minutes before it starts to do the really serious changes, right? Now, well, I mentioned that, that... Let's go to another part that works before we move forward. Because there's this nice bit where she mentions, I don't understand, you know, why would anyone come back here? There's no explanation for why they would abandon their post keeping in mind that she herself, prior to that moment, has had her own compulsion to go down to the planet, a compulsion she will then have immediately after that as well. It feels like the answer was right there. Just, whatever. I suppose nobody really thought, felt the need to, to address it. Data has a good scene, too, I want to address, because Data insists he is not worried about Geordi, because worry is an emotion. And yet, Data is worried about Geordi, just not without feeling it. Data has a system of values. I've discussed this many times before. You don't need to emote. You don't need to have emotion to care about something. And he has a system of priority and system of relevance. And he obviously does care and values Jordy, and thus is, as he himself puts it, highly motivated to fix the situation. That's all actually very congruent and very in character, and I just wanted to give a little bit of praise to that little scene, because it's a nice touch. Then there's a scene where Beverly insists that whatever is infecting her is not contagious, even though she doesn't actually know the vector of impact, of, of being spread. It's also worth noting that based on her, her statements later, when she actually figures out what it is, it is actually super mega, no, really contagious. And in fact, she should probably check everyone else on the ship right now, or else they're just going to be back here in five years, you know? Uh, then... Well, then the episode loses me a little bit because Jordy says, I need to work on this. Okay, that makes sense. You know, get working to the heart of the problem, getting on it. I'm with it. Why is no one with him? Remember, we have demonstrable evidence as of this point in time within this episode that these changes start happening like that. That she more and more and more was compulsed to go to the planet, and then she finally started changing within seconds, and then they had to rush her. And if not for the quick action there, which was good, they would have lost her. So why does anyone allow Jordy to be alone? That's actually stupid. <laughs> His counter-argument is, have the computer monitor me. Okay. Um... <laughs> 
Now, we don't know at this point in time that the, the, they have the chameleon abilities, so we don't really know that they can hide from computer sensors. Fine. Better point, why does the computer not notify someone the moment he stops being there? Actually, funny fact, this is a recurring issue in later Star Trek. This came up several times in Voyager, where we'd have a continuous lock, or computer would be continuously monitoring something, and then someone would later ask, all right, do such and such, and it would be like, well, we've lost the lock. <laughs> right? I mean, do I even need to explain this? Come on. <laughs> what should have happened is the second that it lost the lock on him, it should have notified someone. That's how that works. But instead, the computer just nonchalantly says, oh, he's not on the ship. Yeah, I didn't notify anyone because, honestly, uh, union rules say that... <laughs> I, I don't know. <sighs> then what, what makes this even worse is that later Data comes by and basically suggests that he help out and assist. Now, two points about this. First of all, Geordi is stressed and tired. Data's a frickin' android. So, yeah, Geordi should have probably had Data be involved in this thing. Second of all, Data is someone else who can't be infected by this virus or whatever it is, and therefore is someone who would be safe to escort him under all circumstances. So, why didn't Data insist? Why wasn't Data ordered? And why didn't Geordi accept it? Are all questions we're just going to have to toss into the ether because I don't freaking know. Now, the answer is obvious. The episode wouldn't have happened if Data had been there, or at least some of the episode wouldn't have happened, because Data would have caught the change in Geordi, and Geordi can't outfight, outmaneuver, or out-whatever Data, especially when he's losing his mind, so he would have never escaped the planet, we would have never had the touching scene. You know, the end, right? There's no crisis. <sighs> then... <sighs> There's a bit where Jordy starts feeling symptoms. Now, he mentioned that he would notify them the moment he started having symptoms. Why doesn't he? And don't tell me because he's out of his mind, because he's still working on the problem. He's still trying to solve it. So he still at least has enough of his mind to think properly. And yet he starts having the shaking and all that, and he's just like, yeah, whatever. It's not a big deal. Who cares, really? Then we get to the part of the episode I really want to talk about. Because I actually don't have much to say about the rest of this episode, if I'm being honest. The usage of the holodeck as a deductive tool. That's awesome. And I want to stress that. Because this is brilliant. I can't believe we haven't really done this before, and we barely do this after this point. This is an incredible idea. Because not only does it make perfect sense in-universe, but it makes the deduction of a mystery more interesting out-of-universe. Because we can, rather than someone just kind of... You know, zoom and enhance, enhance section 35.3, green grain, you know. We can actually see that as a three-dimensional visual space with the characters running around it. Now, yes, I understand that that's more difficult to do when it comes to special effects and post-processing, but I think this shows that that effect really works great. Now, the funny thing is, I walked into this episode prepared to slam this episode for the holodeck scene. Really? Because... By memory, I always thought it was stupid that he was able to deduce what he did based on what was available. I mean, how does it know the shadow's there, right? But when I rewatched it, and I was paying very careful attention, actually, based on what happens, everything that follows is actually quite congruent and logical. It's basically just a series of logical deductions based on presumption. The one and only thing that is a mess-up is the fact that Geordi 
gets in front of the shadow, and the shadow goes on his face. That's the only flaw in the entire scene, because that shouldn't have happened. At that point in time, the computer didn't have any information to extrapolate a location of the source of the shadow. Ergo, the shadow, which it has no actual programmed source for, should have just been on the wall, and Jordy could have walked in front of it, and there would have been no shadow in front of him. Now, I know that's a difficult effect to pull off, but that's what should have happened. That's the only flaw in the whole scene, though. I love the way they do it. Um, the computer can't identify, but it can identify the sh shadow itself. And when you remove other people, the whole shadow's there. At first, I had a problem with that, but when I look at it in, in hindsight, it, granted, this is getting into zoom and enhance cliche, but it actually is reasonably likely that what the computer is doing is, well, we know the shadow that's being, the computer's saying, I know the shadow that's being generated by this person because it is this shadow at this gradient. If I remove that gradient, I see a slightly different gradient here. In other words, it's able to pick up the difference in the, the lighting, effectively, of the shadow to produce the new shadow. Then when he says, well, where is it? Well, I don't know where it is. Well, where is it? And this is the best part. He decides to reverse engineer it from vector and shape. Makes sense. We know where the light source is. We know the shape of the shadow, and we know its source. So we actually have a decent amount of information here, and yet the computer still says, nope, can't do it, which is correct. Because there's just additional variables, most notably size is the big one, that we don't know to determine location. Jordy then says, all right, let's add a presumption. What, assume it's my size, roughly. Now extrapolate. Done, because now we have all three variables necessary to determine. Source, shape, size. Bam, right there. That's great. And it's this great scene. It's almost a shame that it's actually irrelevant to the overall episode. It's basically a mystery being unveiled for us, that there was another entity there that was amongst them, which is then immediately showcased on screen when we see the UV creatures. But I really just wanted to praise that whole thing. It's using the holodeck as a storytelling tool rather than a method of trying to create a crisis, you know, a threat of the week, or trying to just have it be there for the heck of it. And I like that. So I'm, this is when the computer monitoring problem comes up. Speaking of which, the computer can't find him. How's he beam down? How's he beam up, actually, while I'm on the subject? Can they turn that on and off? I don't know. They use the UV stuff. Actually, they use the UV stuff in real life. They actually had uh, ultraviolet lighting in order to show off on the, the black paint, all that stuff. I think the effect actually worked very well. You might have noticed, I did as a kid, but I didn't understand what I was noticing. I just, I always thought the lighting on the planet looked weird. And the reason why is because they literally used a different lighting setup, specifically because they were going to set up this UV lighting thing. And they had a whole different thing uh, from a tech angle, from a tech perspective. I think it worked out pretty damn well, actually, especially given the time. The outfits on the out... Admittedly, they haven't aged well, and the Blu-ray, it's a lot more obvious that it's a person wearing a suit that's been wear painted by the lighting, which is a bit of a shame. But they still do some decent stuff with us. And LeVar Burton actually managed to do some decent uh, visual acting, body motion, body language acting, with basically just a suit and no expression and no words. And it's a good scene when he reaches out to Lighten and she reaches out to him and he embraces her. It's a good scene. Why didn't they just shoot to stun the moment they saw him? Like, if they're this scared, he's going to run off. Just Maybe that was the backup plan. I don't know. It would have been nice if Worf was just back there, like, ready to go. You know, something to indicate that. So we got to talk about this race really quick. Apparently, it is a race 
which uh, can't communicate, based on what we understand. They only operate on instinct, which effectively makes them not sentient and sapient. So, basically, beast level, right? Okay. Although beasts can communicate, I know. But you get my point. We're, we're shifting them down a step. All right, I'm with it. How long does this race live? Like, what's their lifespan? Because if it's not super long, how the hell do they reproduce on a planet that doesn't really have a lot of people coming and visiting? Or can they do this invasion thing on any creature, on any plant or any animal, to be able to reproduce? I, I'm imagining no, since it did implant some things that would be equivalent to thought within the target. This is how Lighten actually knows what to do and how to find them. And, well... Basically, I don't buy it. It, it, it. But by the episode's projections, it looks like this race has to reproduce by using other relatively humanoid creatures. Okay. Where? What are the? Uh, did we? Did we just genocide these people? They get to this. They get out. They put up a nav buoy, a warning buoy, say, saying, "Stay away." These people don't have space travel and no one else to reproduce off of. So. I mean, what do you think is going to happen if human beings stopped having the ability to have children? You, know, you fast forward a, you know, a century, and that's it, <laughs> right? I don't know. It's just just food for thought because, well, I mentioned that this episode feels like an episode written by Braga, and this is kind of why because Braga he does do some stuff very well. He's good at character interactions. He's good at mysteries. Uh, he's good at unfolding and utilizing tools with regards to advancing the story. He's good at using science fiction, what's usually called high concepts. Uh, time travel, uh, time manipulation is a good example. Um, genetic manipulation is something he's done. In this episode, he does that as well. You know, the usage of the holodeck, I mentioned that already. That's the kind of stuff Braga's usually good at, at least in Star Trek. I haven't really followed him after Star Trek, but I know he's still, he's still going. He's still working. But um, his, his one of his flaws is that he doesn't actually understand science particularly well. And there's just, like, logical holes in his stuff. And this is a good example of that. Maybe that was in the original spec script. I don't know. But that's all I've got for this week. Sorry for the shorter episode. I hope to see you again next time.